Welcome to The Indicator, the weekly lowdown on Colorado's must-watch 2018 governor's race. From the staff of the Colorado Independent, a non-profit digital newsroom of award-winning reporters focused on news in the public interest, in collaboration with KGNU Community Radio, part of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. This is a weekly show taking a look at the hotly contested governor's race and the two candidates, Jared Polis, a Democrat, and Walker Stapleton, a Republican. Today, we take a look at Jared Polis. We will win in November and we will deliver because together we can prove that in our America, in our Colorado, anything is possible. Let's get to work. Thank you very much. Let's get it done. He's been labelled as a bolder liberal, but is his voting record more nuanced? He's one of the wealthiest members of Congress and has spent a lot of his own money in his own political races. But what's been the impact of that political spending? We'll discuss that and more with Alex Burness of the Colorado Independent. He's written an in-depth profile of Polis. You can read it online at coloradoindependent.com. It starts with Polis's earliest foray into politics as a teenager in California to his entrance into Princeton at the tender age of 16. You know, I always had a sense that um, uh, Jared Polis, who I've, whose career I've followed pretty closely ever since I've been a reporter in Colorado, that he's um, he's a he's a brainy dude. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's really much more than that. He, he is unusually uh, sort of freakishly driven and um, you know, focused on, on his own growth and development and, um, said to his parents, uh, that he wanted to go into politics when he was, um, you know, a, a teenager, um, and they didn't even want to go to college. And they said, well, that's not going to happen. You got to go to college. And he said, okay, then I'll just leave high school early. And, um, he arranged, he got the permission of his school. He, of his high school, that is, he got into, uh, Princeton after applying at the age of 16, um, apparently the harder, the hardest sell of all this was, was to convince his parents to let him leave a year early, but, uh, he says he worked on them and they eventually came around. Um, so he ends up at Princeton, um, a year younger than everybody else and having finished high school in just three years. And he told me, uh, you know, if I'd had to stick around high school another year, it would have felt like a waste to me. So much of the narrative around Jared Polis is the money and how that has impacted the various different political races he's been a part of and certainly the primary for him to end up as a Democratic nominee in the gubernatorial race. But that money comes from quite a young age and the tech uh, arena. Take us back to the, the, the root of Jared Polis and his wealth, because he is one of the wealthiest members of Congress right now. And his own personal wealth is certainly playing a role in uh, this particular election. Yeah, it absolutely uh, plays a huge role. Um, Jared, uh, his whole life dating back to, uh, you know, his youth, uh, his, his teenage years, uh, is just peppered with stories about him making money in all these sort of unexpected ways. Uh, but he, he really hit it um, rich uh, with a company called American Information Systems uh, that he founded with a couple friends uh, with a few servers in their dorm room. Uh, and this was one of the early internet service providers. These days, we're all used to having, you know, one or two options for our internet service providers uh, in Denver. You know, it's going to be Comcast or CenturyLink. But 
this was early on when there were many more smaller local ones in American information systems. Um, they operated uh, mostly in the Chicago area, um, and uh, they, they also provided web hosting and application development, um, and this was in... Uh, the late 90s, in 1998, uh, the company sold for $23 million. Um, so Jared was uh, a young, pretty uh, wealthy dude. Um, people who knew him then said it didn't really change him that much, that he still drove the same old beat-up Jeep. Um, and he clearly didn't, you know, uh, put his foot off the pedal at all. He stayed focused and he, uh, you know, kept kept pushing in business because, then he had a couple other ventures uh, that went um, spectacularly well for him in the years that would come. Uh, I mean, just one year later, um, after this $23 million sale of American Information Systems, um, his family's greeting card company, uh, Blue Mountain, um, sold uh, for above $700 million. And this had started as, you know, literally a, a mom and pop shop of uh, greeting cards. And Jared uh, turned this into a, an e-card giant. Um, so they were the sort of early pioneers in, in electronic cards, um, which now are, you know, basically obsolete, but were very exciting for a period of time um, uh, back in the late 90s um, and evidently hugely overvalued. Uh, they really cashed out in a big way. They made, like I said, more than $700 million in the sale uh, of this company, uh, and the company that bought it um, ended up actually flipping, uh, it was selling Blue Mountain two years later for $35 million. So uh, they got out at the right time. They made a lot of money. Jared got extremely rich. His parents got extremely rich. Um, and not that he needed more money, but he happened to make a whole lot more of it uh, in 2006 when uh, he is another company he founded, Pro Flowers which uh, delivers floral arrangements. You can still buy from them today. Um, they sold for almost $500 million. So uh, Jared, between organizations and, and businesses, has either founded or co-founded um, about tw 20 different things. Those are the, the, the three big money ones, but um, his he's, he's really never stopped on the business front. He's always had a lot that he's been involved with from a very young age, and in a bunch of cases, it's made him really, really, really rich. In terms of how that personal wealth then first made an appearance in politics here in Colorado, take us back to that first foray that uh, Jared Polis stepped into, and that was for a State Board of Education seat. And money that was spent by him, his own money, that significantly impacted that and gave us a sense of how politics would change here in the state when you have somebody with that, those personal resources to spend in an election. Mm -hmm. So I'll take you back, first of all, to uh, a conversation that I had with uh, one of the early employees of, of ProFlowers, um, who's a, a German man uh, who Jared recruited to be a part of the company and um, who I, I interviewed for um, my series on, on Jared. And he said that one of the things, one of the strongest impressions he got working with Polis is that... Um, Polis was never one to throw too much money or too many resources at a problem that uh, he would have these big ideas and, and he would have a sense for, OK, what do we need to get this done? Um, and 
and let's go ahead and do it as opposed to let's, you know, just throw so many millions of dollars at it um, and, and solve it that way. And, and that he had some real discipline in, in that sense. Um, that's what the colleague said anyway. Um, but then when Jared goes into politics, you, you really see the exact opposite. He's 25 years old and he decides to run for the uh, state board of education. Um, he had an early interest in, in education and in improving educational opportunities, particular, particularly, excuse me, for the underserved. Um, and I, I talked a great bit with his uh, mother about this. But he wants to go into politics, which he said he was going to do since he was a teenager. Now he's finally doing it. And he picks the State Board of Education. And just to give you a sense for the seat that he was running for, I mean, it, it is about as unglamorous a, a statewide political office as you can find. It might be the least glamorous. It is unpaid. Um, it is uh, an office that very few pay attention to. I mean, when's the last time you can remember seeing an article about something done by the, the State Board of Education? Um, so it's the, the board basically is made up of a bunch of people who um, are either retired or uh, have other jobs um, or other primary interests, but who serve on this board um, kind of in, in spare time, or at least in essentially a volunteer fashion. I mean, they are unpaid. So the people who would run for this board would usually raise a few thousand dollars. And um, the seat that Jared was gunning for was an at-large seat, and it was held by a guy named Ben Alexander, a Republican from Montrose. And Ben Alexander was gearing up uh, in, in the year 2000 for uh, uh, to run uh, for a full term. He'd been, uh, he had been appointed to a vacancy the year before. Now he was going to run for a full proper term. And his plan was, you know, I'm going to raise a few thousand bucks. He had a he had one campaign appearance planned, um, and uh, in swoops Jared Polis, uh, who's got plans to spend a million dollars. And a million dollars is is a you know it's it's a pretty spectacular amount of money for anybody to throw into their own campaign, really for any office. There are only a handful of people in the state of Colorado's history who have, who have thrown a million dollars of personal cash uh, into running for governor. Jared Polis is, of course, one of them, but um, only, only four or five people who've ever done that. Jared Polis is about to do this for an unpaid job um, that nobody really paid attention to, and he was 25 years old. So this was uh, totally shocking to everyone, while, while this guy, Alexander, the incumbent, um, is going about his life. He has a property management company that takes up most of his time. He's renting apartments and mobile homes. And he's, you know, you can't even really say he's running a campaign. He, he barely is. He's got uh, $10,000 that he ends up spending. And like I said, he makes one campaign appearance. Jared soups up a yellow school bus uh, with uh, high tech and computers. And he drives to every corner of the state. And he sends out all these mailers, and he spends $1.2 million, um, you know, more than 100 times what Ben Alexander spent. It was completely unheard of, um, and uh, it would really sort of kind of – it would signal what was to come because um, if there's one thing that's been consistent in Jared Polis's political career, it's that he uh, will spend however much it takes uh, to win, and that's pretty much always going to be more than uh, – a lot more than his opponents. And – he won the State Board of Education race by 90 votes. There had to be a recount. So it was too close to call on election night. There had to be a recount. This guy spent, this guy who outspent his opponent by 100 times, the opponent barely even tried to get elected. Jared Polis barely uh, eked out the win. So that that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, end to that story, that after outspending him so dramatically, 
um, he ends up, you know, winning in a recount by 90 votes. Well, when he did, and he spent six years in that one term on the uh, State Board of Education, but he was also making inroads with the Democratic Party in Colorado in his uh, capacity as being a very capable fundraiser. In addition to spending his own money and having quite deep pockets, he was able to tap into deep pockets of other fundraisers or other uh, donors for the Democratic Party. Talk a little bit about the Gang of Four and who they were and what that meant for fundraising and the influence then on politics in the state of Colorado. If you talk to uh, Democrats in the state uh, who were around back then and, and, and before 2004, what they'll tell you is we had never really uh, come together in a, in a bold, strategic way um, uh, around election seasons. Um, we were never as coordinated or as well-resourced uh, as the Republicans. And if you look at the at the makeup um, of, of uh, you know, who, who was representing Colorado in various offices back then, um, that sort of confirms what they were saying. Uh, in 2004, um, Republicans had both U.S. Senate seats. They had the governor's mansion, the secretary of state, the treasurer, five of the uh, state's seven congressional U.S. congressional seats and uh, both chambers of the state legislature. And so uh, Jared Polis, along with um, three others, uh, also all very wealthy, Tim Gill, Rutt Bridges, and Pat Stryker, they get together uh, in coordination with um, some other wealthy, well-moneyed uh, Democrats in the state working more behind the scenes, but they uh, get together and decide, okay, we're going to actually start doing what Democrats have never done here in this state, um, which is to be coordinated and to be uh, strategic and to spend a lot of money and to recruit candidates um, and to target vulnerable Republicans. Um, and they were successful. I mentioned in um, 2004, all these offices um, that were held by Republicans and the chambers of the legislature, by 2008, the exact opposite would be true. So they flipped it completely. And this is just a, a really key moment in Colorado's shift um, from red to blue. Uh, not that it's soundly, uh, uh, you know, blue at, at the moment, but it's in, in the blue of flying of Colorado, um, the, the, the shift left. Uh, this was just a, a critical moment. And um, Jared Polis uh, certainly played a big role, not only in throwing his own money into that, um, which he's always uh, been willing to do. Uh, if you look at his uh, campaign finance records, uh, the, the records of his donations, I mean, he's given to hundreds of campaigns um, and, and ballot issues in the state of Colorado. Um, but he was also really, uh, as I understand it, sort of a strategic chief uh, behind this gang of four. Um, so, you know, I mentioned early on in his life, you know, he had all these businesses, but he was always busy. Everybody you talked to said, Jared's busy. He uses up every minute of his day. He's always doing something new. And it's like, you know, he spent this million dollars to get on the state education board. He's 25 years old. Conceivably, one could, you know, dedicate most of their time to that. But no, I mean, he was busy, uh, you know, taking over, helping to, to take over state politics, um, among a whole bunch of other things he was up to. But uh, he certainly played a big role in, in uh, changing the the tint of the state uh, a little bit bluer. We're speaking with Alex Burness of the Colorado Independent today on The Indicator, which is a weekly podcast produced by the Colorado Independent and KGNU Community Radio. 
part of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. New episodes come out every Thursday. You can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts and hear it on KGNU Thursday afternoons at three o'clock. This is a series that's looking at the hotly contested gubernatorial race here in Colorado and it'll be weekly until the elections in November. Alex Burness has written a very in-depth profile on Jared Polis, who's a Democratic candidate in this race. You can catch it online at coloradoindependent.com. Well, in terms of Jared's own political career, in 2008, He had his eyes on the second congressional district seat, and that was the one that was held by Mark Udall. Many people in Colorado felt that Joan Fitzgerald would be the Democratic nominee in that seat. Joan was the first woman state Senate president in Colorado's history. She was later the chamber's minority leader, and many people felt she was the heir apparent for Udall's seat. But along came Jared Polis. Talk a little bit about that particular race. Yeah, so uh, at Jared's uh, 32 years old when um, he decides he's going to run for this seat. Um, Mark Udall uh, goes on to run for Senate. Of course, he wins. Um, and uh, it's uh, Polis, once again, uh, drops a ton of cash. He spends uh, uh, about $7 million to Joan Fitzgerald's uh, 2.4 million. Um, so he, you know, he, he does what he does money-wise. He also, though, at this point, Jared's built a lot of connections uh, in the state of Colorado. Um, like I said, he donates to a zillion campaigns. He was a part of the Gang of Four. Uh, he's been a state official uh, on, on the Board of Education. Um, at this point, he, he had finished a six-year term. He, he didn't seek another. Um and he's an opportunistic guy uh, who really doesn't – he's not very patient. He doesn't like to wait his turn, and I don't mean those in negative ways uh, necessarily, just that he's he's always eager to, to get things done as quick as possible. It dates back to, uh, as we were discussing earlier, his desire to go into politics when he's 15 years old, and then his parents say, no, you can't. So he says, okay, I'll apply to Princeton when I'm 16. He's just sort of in a rush. Um, and so he's 32. He decides to run for Congress. Um and uh, he ekes out a win uh, over Joan Fitzgerald. He wins by four points. It's interesting talking to his campaign manager and, and a few other folks who were around during that time uh, and followed that campaign closely. Polis has a lot of money, um, and he spends a lot of money. He also has a sort of un, uh, uh, underrated, underratedly sizable and avid uh, network of supporters. And I think we really saw that. Uh, in the 2008 race that um, a lot of people uh, felt like, you know, sort of, who is this guy? That This, this is Joan Fitzgerald's seat. She's going to win it. Um, it's a comfortably blue district. Um, so whoever wins the primary is going to have the seat. Um, uh, and, um, you know, a lot of people felt like this, this is Joan's time. And um, Jared wasn't ready to wait his turn. He swooped in. Uh, his network backed him. He outspent her uh, vastly and uh, won by four points and then totally cruised in the general election, won by uh, 23. In terms of Jared Polis's actual policies and politics, he is very much being framed in this election where Walker Stapleton is his uh, Republican opponent. He's being framed very much as a bolder liberal. We'll get into what that means in a minute. But his actual record is a lot more nuanced and complicated than that because he certainly hasn't always had 
liberal votes. Uh, many people could see him through a libertarian prism. I mean, I remember him speaking on KGNU uh, around the TPP and his, and his support of trade policies like that. Yet he's supportive of other uh, very liberal politics and certainly around immigration and his support of undocumented immigrants and the dreamers would put him on the more liberal end of the spectrum. Alex, let's talk a little bit about his voting record and his actual policies and where he actually falls on this spectrum. What he's what his record in Congress has been that could indicate where he could govern as a as a if he were to be governor, but also this idea of him being a bolder liberal when really his political record is a little bit more nuanced and complicated. Yeah, it it is nuanced. It is complicated. Let's start with, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which Jared Polis um, is a Democrat through and through uh, and, and is pretty far left. I mean, he's extremely socially liberal. He stands up for um, the underprivileged, the underserved, sort of at, at every turn of his career, not, not just as a politician. I mean, he's founded schools for uh, immigrant kids for homeless kids. Um, he has a couple sort of semi-viral moments online where he really goes to bat on on, on the House floor uh, for the Dreamers, uh, brought a Dreamer to, to the State of the Union. Um, he's been, in fact, I'll just say as an aside, talking to his colleagues in Congress, and I said, you know, w- what's Jared's reputation in D.C.? That that came up over and over. He loves the Dreamers. He is obsessed with DACA. Um, that is, you know, m- perhaps his biggest issue. They are here because our government is tearing apart their families, Madam Speaker. Well, the gentleman from Colorado understand all members. Will the Speaker understand that the Speaker is obstructing HR 15 from coming to the floor? And then he's he's got a pretty well documented uh, libertarian streak as well. Um, there's a lot of evidence of this. Um, I mean, he's he's the only. Uh, Democrat to sit on the House Liberty Caucus. Um, he advocated for the privatization of the uh, U.S. Postal Service. There's a, a number of examples. And um, still, uh, I think that, you know, to those who are paying attention, you know, to journalists who've looked into it or those who've followed closely his career in D.C., that part of him is pretty well known. But, um, you know, he's, he's got this reputation uh, back in Colorado, among a lot of people, and certainly Republicans push this narrative that he's, you know, a pretty reliably extreme progressive. When in fact his his voting record is is more nuanced than that. He is well above average, like 90th percentile among House Democrats uh, for sponsoring bipartisan legislation. Uh, he's played a uh, maybe the most significant thing he's done in Congress is uh, serve on the uh, House Rules Committee. Um, which, as I said in the story, is sort of like the bouncer of Congress. If if a bill is going to get to the floor, it's got to go through rules. And um, so the Democrats uh, have been in the minority for eight of Jared's 10 years in uh, in Congress. And so and they're in the minority now. They're in the minority on the Rules Committee. So for Jared and, and his three colleagues who are out, now outnumbered nine to four on rules, when a bill comes through there, their goal is basically – you know, they don't have the votes to stop it if they don't like it. So the question is, you know, where can they make meaningful indentation um, if they can at all? And Jared has proven sort of unusually effective at, um, at, at making up a little ground or getting folks on his side. He's um, gotten more amendments through um, than any of the other uh, Democrats uh, on that committee and uh, talking to people who serve with him. Um, they say he's dogged. He's always looking for an opportunity to to, you know, sway people. And um, obviously, he's a Democrat. He doesn't always get his way far from it. But um, more often than 
than most. He, he's able to come through with some sort of bipartisan partnership. In terms of this year's gubernatorial race, fracking and oil and gas looms large as it always does in any Colorado election. And Jared Polis actually finds himself on the same side as his Republican opponent, Walker Stapleton, when it comes to Prop 112, which would increase setbacks for new oil and gas development. He's not always been on the same side as Republicans when it comes to fracking. Take us back to 2014 and how Jared Polis got involved with the fracking debate here in Colorado and how that all played out. Yeah, so, and I'll even start by taking you back to 2013 uh, when Jared Polis becomes really active in the anti-fracking movement um, because his home in Weld County, um, he, he's the, his family's got a number of homes. They have a cabin in uh, Vail. Um, he has a house in D.C. that he's now selling. He's got a luxury condo in downtown Boulder. He also has a home in Weld County where um, his partner, Marlon Reese, uh, has some family members who live there. And it's, you know, um, uh, just up the road from Boulder a little bit. Um, and a, a, a fracking operation pops up there right next to his house. And he posts a video, um, you know, basically saying, you know, what a shame this is. And he says something like, you know, our, our Colorado dream is dead. We've been fracked. Um and he also expresses explicitly a willingness. He says, you know, I'll, I'm ready to become a face um, of this movement um, against fracking. And, of course, there's all these environmental and health concerns uh, related to uh, uh, oil and gas drilling too close to uh, homes and schools and waterways, other occupied structures. And so Jared makes good on what he says he's going to do. He indeed becomes a, a face of this movement and in 2014 leads the charge um, for two ballot measures um, that, you know, scare the heck out of the uh, oil and gas industry. Uh, One of them uh, was going to require 2,000 foot setbacks um, from occupied structures and some of these vulnerable waterways. Um, And so this is a super contentious issue in, in Colorado because there's a ton of money that comes from that industry and there's a ton of jobs in that industry. And John Hickenlooper, the governor, uh, now and at the time, um, he's a former oil and gas geologist, and he's always uh, uh, been a friend of the industry. So n- none of the uh, uh, people really in, in power in the state are too excited about these ballot measures, uh, uh, you know, going to voters in November of 2014, because it's going to be a big expense. It's going to be an expensive and, and a very explosive ballot fight. Um, but, uh, you know, Jared's sticking with it, and he's... Um, uh, like I said, sort of the face of this movement. And there's a whole lot of grassroots activism uh, uh, behind him. Um, and he's with it until he's not, until he strikes a uh, sort of 11th hour compromise uh, with Hickenlooper uh, that calls for the formation of an oil and gas commission that's going to make recommendations on some of these areas of concern, um, but that more importantly is going to result in these two ballot measures being pulled. Um, so... This really bums out, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, infuriates really, actually, um, a lot of the anti-fracking base that he had. I mean, I remember in 2014 uh, when I was a reporter in Boulder covering a uh, – he, he had a town hall scheduled, and this was um, – I think it just had coincidentally been scheduled for around the same time uh, just after this compromise was announced. And I remember he, he walks up – it was at a public library in uh, in East Boulder, and – I don't remember if he even got into the building. Maybe he did after like an hour, but he was just swarmed 
with people um, who were calling him a traitor and yelling in his face and telling him um, how much they hated what he had done. And um, I remember him just kind of standing there and taking it. Um, but he, he took a whole lot of heat uh, from, his, from, from that anti-fracking base that he had sort of become a leader of. But he had also really uh, uh, ruffled the feathers of um, uh, Democratic leadership. I mean, they really didn't want to see these ballot measures come forward. And while, you know, they were Hickenlooper and, and the powers that be were ultimately successful in, in um, getting the ballot measures pulled, um, Polis had, had really caused a lot of disruption at a, uh, during an election when the Democrats felt like, you know, we don't really need this right now. Um, uh, Mark Udall's seat was up. Um and actually, he, he ended up losing. Um, Hickenlooper w- was up as well. He won pretty narrowly. Um, but Jared had sort of gone rogue, uh, I, I think a lot of people felt, um, and in doing so sort of endangered his own party's prospects. And then in reeling back this rogue action, um, it really angered a lot of people who looked up to him and, and look, looked to him as a voice of the movement. Um, and, you know, i I talk to and I I read comments from uh, some of the people in that base today who, you know, still aren't really over it. And they wonder, um, you know, what what Jared are are we really going to get? Because he's got these chops as, you know, he's fluent on on the fracking stuff. It happened to him personally in his own house. He led this charge. um, But uh, then he struck this compromise. And now uh, this year there's a twenty five hundred foot setbacks are on the ballot, and uh, Jared Polis has come out against them. Now, who knows, you know, in his heart, if he were just an average citizen, uh, would he vote for these? Um, his his previous record indicates, you know, strong chance that, that the answer is yes. Um, but uh, as Jared Polis, the candidate, um, he has uh, portrayed himself as, as sort of an open-minded collaborator of the oil and gas industry. I heard him speak at the Energy Summit uh, in downtown Denver just a few weeks ago. And, you know, it was very diplomatic. It was basically, you know, we might not always agree on everything, but, you know, I can promise to work with you. And I certainly don't support these ballot measures. They're a bad idea. Um, so far from this hard liner that, that we saw earlier. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was this, this movement that, that he was such a part of that, um, um, he's now very much uh, on the outside. What are the main tenets of his campaign now as a Democratic candidate in the governor's race? Um, his big his big promises include uh, uh, free universal uh, pre-K and kindergarten. Um, and this is a subject, you know, very close to uh, Polis's heart and something he knows a ton about from his career in education. I mean, there's all these studies um, that, that indicate... Um, the degree to which uh, kids who have, uh, you know, the, the degree to which early access to early childhood education can be an indicator of all sorts of um, other kinds of successes uh, or, or failures um, or health issues uh, or income prospects, et cetera, um, for, for people in the rest of their lives. So um, this is critically important to, to Polis and one of the main things on his platform. And uh, he says, you know, I'll bring together a winning coalition and we'll get a ballot measure uh, uh, to voters that'll raise taxes to pay for this. Um, he also wants to transition the uh, state to 100% renewable energy by 2040. Um, he is a fan of single-payer health care um, and potentially even working with uh, other neighboring states to create a, a network. Um and so those are 
pretty liberal policies um, and uh, have, have uh, you know, give some support or sort of back up uh, the arguments of people who say, oh, he's this, you know, tax and spend, bolder liberal. Um, but he's not been, um, you know, like I said on the oil and gas front, um, he has not been too much of, of a, a progressive hardliner. Um, Walker Stapleton, his opponent, for example, has talked over and over and over for months now about, you know, you have to elect me to secure our borders and, um, you know, Jared Polis is going to turn this into a sanctuary state. Polis has taken, uh, who, by the way, has, has um, all this experience on his record of, of really being a friend to the immigrant community and putting his money uh, behind supporting them. I mentioned he founded these schools for immigrant kids. But, um, you know, as much as it's been a central part of Stapleton's campaign, it has been a, a real minor part of uh, Polis's. He he scarcely m- mentions that issue, um, which we know is, you know, is it's a hot button among Republicans. I think something, uh, there was a survey that said about 43% of Colorado Republicans listed immigration as as uh, their biggest issue. Um, so perhaps for that reason, he hasn't wanted to uh, to speak out too much on that front. He hasn't spoken out too much on, um, on uh, against oil and gas or really uh, uh, corporations of any kind. Um, which he has more of a history of doing in in, in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, one example that I, you know, it's sort of minor, but I think it's kind of funny and telling is that um, Jared Polis has this stump line that he's used over and over a thousand times um, in the last few months uh, where he says, you know, because he's self-funding his own campaign, he's poured more than $18 million of his own money into this campaign. And he says, you know, this affords me a certain degree of freedom where I don't, um, you know, I don't have to go to the PACs or to the uh, corporate donors or the super rich. And he loves to say uh, that he could be at, quote, Denver steakhouses, but, uh, you know, he'd rather spend his time at in intimate meet and greets and talking with everyday people. And he specifically says, I don't go to Denver steakhouses. Um, and just the other day, I, I saw a tweet from a Denver Post reporter who tracked Jared Polis down at a Denver steakhouse uh, where he was campaigning among wealthy donors. Now, his campaign isn't accepting more than $100 from any individual, um, so it's not like he was raking in millions that night. But still, it's just sort of interesting to me, this guy who says, you know, I don't go to this one specific place, pops up in this specific place. So he's, um, you know, in... He he can he has this uh, the capacity to be sort of a uh, maverick type and an iconoclast, but um, Polis, the candidate, at least since the primary, I think has been fairly mainstream. I th- I think if you popped into Colorado um, and you didn't know anything about Jared Polis's career previous, um, you would not look at this guy and say this this is an extreme liberal or that th- th- this is a you know an, an unpredictable guy who's going to be you know particularly dangerous to. To this industry or that, um, I think I think we've seen a, a perhaps predictable, but um, at any rate, sort of attack to the middle. Alex Burness is a reporter with the Colorado Independent. You can read his very in-depth profile of Jared Polis at coloradoindependent.com. You're listening to The Indicator. It is a weekly podcast, a collaboration between the Colorado Independent and KGNU Community Radio. Catch new episodes every Thursday. Alex, thanks very much for being with us. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Indicator. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU.